Well, good morning. My name is Zach Thompson. I am on staff here at Calvary. And if you are, are new or you've uh, been out for a little bit, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, and, and really grateful uh, for uh, last week, we had Brody Young, who's on staff. He, he oversees our students and our local outreach. Uh, he was, was up here preaching uh, when I was not here. So I'm grateful to him for a, a couple of reasons. One, so that I could go to a conference. I'm so glad that Calvary places an emphasis on development, which is great because that's what I want as well. I I want to grow in being a caring and loving pastor. Very simply, I I want to be a good pastor for all of you. And and so I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to continue to try to grow into that. And and hopefully this conference was was part of of that growth. Uh, Another reason why I'm grateful for Brody, I, I thought he did a great job preaching through the text. Uh, we, we had a really interesting moment where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. All of Luke has been building to him entering into Jerusalem, and he does so as a king. Then he, he prophesies over the city like a prophet, and then he goes and inserts himself into the temple like a priest, and these Pharisees come up to him and say, where do you get the authority to do any of this? And through the text, Brody helped us uh, see this point that Jesus receives his authority from God. That, that was what I understood the point that Brody was making throughout the text. And, and I bring all of this up to, to remind us whether we were here last week or not, because we're still in Luke chapter 20, and the very background of our passage is still this idea that Jesus receives his authority from God. But in our text, Jesus continues to answer these questions. Now, before we jump into our text, I I do want to pause. As I said, the whole background, the the whole point is, is once again, Jesus receives his authority from God. Uh, And so I thought rather than spending time looking at that same idea through the text when Brody did a great job doing so, I, I noticed that Jesus touches on a few important topics to us. As he's talking about his authority, he's doing so by teaching on a few very important topics. So I I thought maybe it would be best for us to look at what does the passage tell us about those important topics and then wrap it up about Jesus' authority at the very end. Does that work for everyone? It's what I prepared, so I'm glad that that is the case. So in this passage that's all about Jesus' authority, I really hope I'm annoying you by that point. I, I want us walking out of here. What's Luke 20 about? Well, it's about the authority of Jesus. We're going to talk about other things, but it's all about Jesus' authority. Are you, are you annoyed by that yet? I'll keep working on it until you are. Uh, so uh, not annoyed by Jesus' authority, obviously, but never mind. Uh, so uh, in this passage, all about Jesus' authority, here's what we're going to look at. What does it tell us about the future? What does it tell us about marriage? And what does it tell us about questions? That's more of an implication that comes through the chapter as a whole. It's not a specific verse or teaching, but it's following Jesus' example of questions. And so I I think we can spend some time at the end on that. So what does it tell us about the future? What does it tell us about marriage? What does it tell us about questions? We're gonna start right at the top. What does this passage, Luke chapter 20, tell us about the future? If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. Uh, I was going to point you to the Bibles in the back. I don't know where they are. Uh, we, we tend to have Bibles in the back, which if you need one, we are happy to get you one, and that could be yours to keep. But we are in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. What does this passage tell us about the future? Here's verse 27. 
It says, there came to him, some came to Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man, this is the brother, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, then the second, and then the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. It sounds kind of like the plot of some of those uh, murder mystery movies, but we'll, we'll ignore that part. Verse 32, afterwards the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the women be? For the seven had her as a wife. So Jesus has been answering questions thus far from the Pharisees. And now he has this other group called the Sadducees. And that may sound confusing. So here's very simply what we need to take away about these two groups. The Pharisees were religious leaders. They had very little power, very little authority in society. But most of the people, like those who weren't religious leaders, those who were everyday uh, fishermen, farmers, all that, they really liked the Pharisees. They looked the part. They looked holy. They looked pious. They looked like what they were supposed to be doing. So they had popular appeal. Then you have the Sadducees, which was a small group of people hated by most of the people. And despite that, or maybe even because of that, they had all of the power, all of the authority. They were very high in, the sta- in status in the culture. They were essentially like the religious leaders of religious leaders. A little bit more on the Sadducees, though. They believed different things than the Pharisees and, and probably even different things than most of us in here. They didn't believe in angels. They only read from the first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes called the Torah. Uh, That was all that they read for scripture. And then our passage tells us they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They thought that once you died, well, that was it. That, That was the end of existence. And so they come up to Jesus asking him a question out of that idea. And they set up this this scenario. And I want to make it very clear. They're not actually asking Jesus a question here. You ever have those moments where someone asks you something, but they don't really want to know the answer? Maybe it's just to derail you from something or to like poke fun at you. This is some of that idea of poking fun at them. They think the idea of, of the resurrection of life after death is so ridiculous that they ask this ridiculous scenario to try to prove to Jesus, see, why would you believe in such a thing? And so they tell of, uh, of this woman who, who marries someone and then uh, her husband dies without producing an heir. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a provision for this so that the, the family line didn't die off uh, because there's a lot of inheritance and, and, in, uh, and wealth that comes from family lines. There was a protection put in place for the men, let's be honest here. Uh, there was a protection put in place for the male family line where if that uh, brother or if that man died without producing an heir, his wife would marry the next oldest brother. And this keeps happening here without producing an heir until eventually she dies. Having married these seven brothers, none of them produced a male heir or any offspring for that matter in their time. And so they set set up this scenario. Now they ask Jesus and they say, you, Jesus, who believe in the resurrection, you can almost hear like the rest of the Sadducees like trying to hold back their laughter as they're saying this. Jesus, Like, guys, guys, so you who believe in the resurrection, 
what, is she going to have like seven husbands? And, and, they, and they're all laughing and all this stuff. Like what? Like, is she going to stay with this guy on Mondays and then she's going to be this guy's husband on Tuesdays? And it's kind of a ridiculous situation. But it makes us wonder like, yeah, what would happen? What, what would be the case? How would that go about? And, and the question that we asked of this text is, what does it tell us about the future? And it sure seems like Jesus might be up against the ropes on this one. Because if they're showing that this is ridiculous, then yeah, we should get rid of that belief. So what does it tell us about the future? Well, fortunately, Jesus does answer and give us hope that there is more to life than just what we have here. Let's pick it back up in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age, that's people on the earth, people living in this physical, tangible world that we can uh, use our senses on, people in this world marry and are given to marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age, so different age, and to the resurrection from the dead. So those that, that God resurrects to life after they have died. Those people neither marry nor given in marriage. I know I'm asking a lot here, but please put a pin in that idea. We will come back to it for our second question. But for right now, just looking at this, what does it tell us about the future? So those who are resurrected do not marry. Verse 36, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live in him. And then some of the scribes, so you know those who are opponents to Jesus, and some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. All right, so there's a lot there, so, so bear with me on this. Uh, the question of this is, what does this passage tell us about our future? The Sadducees come up, and they look like they have defeated any idea of, of a resurrection, of life after death. So we died, that's it, that's the end. They've clearly defeated Jesus. But Jesus answers their question and then argues for existence of resurrection. He answers their question first by saying, whose husband will this woman be? Well, no one's. He directly answers their question, even though they had no interest of being taught. They weren't seeking understanding. They created this ridiculous situation. It's not some question that they're like hemming and hawing over like, man, what would happen there? Jesus, can you help us on this? No, they thought it was ridiculous. They try to disprove it, but Jesus teaches otherwise. But then he argues for the resurrection. So he answers their question, argues for the resurrection. And he does so in such a masterful way. So he, he does so by going to the Old Testament, in particular, one of those first five books of the Bible. What do we say is the only thing that the Sadducees read as scripture? It was the first five books of the Bible. So he goes to a place that they use as their knowledge base, as their source of information to make his point. He, he says, uh, we see about in the story of Moses in the bush. This is Exodus 3. They didn't have chapter numbers at the time. So you know that story of Moses in the bush? So in that story, what does Moses call God? Well, he says that he, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As it's written, that is in the present tense. It doesn't say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is in the present tense. He is that God. Well, what are Abraham... Uh, Isaac and Jacob up to at the time of Moses. They're 
probably completed their decaying process because they've been long dead. And so how can God in the present tense be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's the God of the living. He has raised those he's called worthy to life. He is still their God because they have been raised to new life in him. He goes to a place that the Sadducees had as their source of knowledge. He says, even here, there is proof that there is more to life than what we can see and taste and hear and touch and smell. That there is life to come. That those who who know God that he considers worthy are raised to life in him. It's really such a fascinating way of arguing here. And and I keep, I'm making a a lot of uh, my focus on this section, on on talking about the resurrection, because that is a really, really important doctrine to, a really important belief to Christians. It's more than just the hope that we have for a future. That, that there is more to this life than the pain that we experience or the hurts or heartbreaks or despair. That we look forward to a day when something new comes, that, that something that's gotta be better than this comes. We, we look forward to a moment where, where our, our bodies are renewed when they don't seem to work like they used to or we are given new bodies uh, when these ones that we have never really seem to work like we wanted or never seem to look like we wanted. That we look forward to a day where there is perfection, what Jesus calls paradise. That, that is hope. That is why resurrection is important to us. But more than that, resurrection is the means by which we have hope because how can we trust in such a future? How do we know that there's, there's more to life than this? Uh, have you died and been brought back to life? Do, do you know someone who has? Like, like it seems so counterintuitive. Why would we expect there to be more? Well, the reason why we can have this hope, not just that this hope exists, but the reason why we can have it is because Jesus promised he would die. He was raised back to life, demonstrating that this is what will happen. How can we have such hope? Well, we are promised that this resurrection will come. Well, how do we know that it's real? Because it has been shown to us that Jesus has kept his word. And so it's, it's really important that we, we, we talk about this doctrine of resurrection because it's so important to us that if the Sadducees are right, then yeah, there's no reason for hope. But Jesus shows, no, I will answer your question. I will argue to show the resurrection is true. I will live my life. I will die in this life. I will be raised again to demonstrate that there is hope. There is means for hope. We have the question of this passage, what does it tell us about the future? And I think there's a couple of things that we can take from this passage to understand what does the future look like? What will it be like? What will we experience? What will we be doing? And the first thing that we have in this passage is that life, this resurrected life is more than just an extension of time. That it's not as though that we have this life that we're living right now, we die, God raises us in a resurrection, and then we just go about our life just with more time to do it. It, it, And we see that Jesus makes this argument between those who are in this age, and it's really hard to keep track of what he's saying. He talks about the sons of this age, those who are on this world, the, the people that we know, that we come across, that there is a distinction between those in the age to come, those who have been resurrected. And so what's the point of all this? That there is some sort of difference between the life that we will be living 
after God raises us. There's not a lot of details in this passage, but it does show us that there is a distinction, that it's not just, we just get more time to keep doing what we've been doing. You know, an infinite number of times for us to shovel our front driveway. An infinite number of time for us to file taxes. An infinite number of times for us to pray that this time when I do my car registration, that it's not the time that I have to get a smog test because I don't really know how I'm going to figure out how to work that in. No, it's not that we just get an infinite amount of time to keep doing everything that we've been doing. Certainly, there's some things that are shared between how we live now and the life that is to come. The rest of the Bible talks about work as being something that we will do. That sounds terrifying to some of you, I know. But work without the, the slog, without the toil, with, without it just feeling like we're just punching a time clock. Or, or for some of us, we love our work, that, that we see it as a gift from God because it is. And we will continue to do that in, in a satisfying way. Uh, worship is something that will continue that we will have no less days to sing his praise. We will never run out of reasons to worship God in an infinite amount of time. That rest is something that all of us have tiredness in our lives and finally we find a place of peace. Relationships, that we have people we care about, people that we know, people that we don't even know that we come into contact with because we were meant for other people. Uh, All of this, we are told, continues into the age to come, all without the toil, all without the listlessness, all without the pain, all without an end to joy. And, And yet, despite there being some things that are similar, it's just not an infinite amount of days to keep on keeping on. It's more than an extension of time. Second thing that this passage tells us about the future is that we are like the angels. Now, a lot of different thoughts about what this might be uh, when Jesus talks about this, but, but I, I think it's very clearly written in verse 36. It says, for they, those who have been raised by God, cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels. So it talks about immortality, that where, do that where does that infinite amount of time comes from? Well, we are made to be like the angels who do not die. There is no end of days anymore. Some people read this and they think that maybe we change our form to be like the angels after we die. Or, and I do not under, understand where this idea comes from. Some people believe we turn into angels when we die. That's not what it's talking about. It is telling us that we are becoming immortal like the angels are. We are brought to this new life where there is no threat to the end uh, of life anymore. There is no uh, fear of, of something taking, of robbing us from life or joy or peace or a future. Third, that this is for those who are called worthy by God. Who, who receives this resurrection? Who receives this new life? It is those who are called worthy by God. Those who trust in the salvation that Jesus brings. Those who turn to God for all of life, both now and for the future. Uh, there's so much more that we could talk about from this passage of what does a future look like, but, but Jesus is making clear that there is certainty that a future is coming. That there is a life that is, that is new, and yet similar. There's a life that will be inexhaustible and yet not just, uh, not just a blur. 
not just a mush, but it becomes a wonderful time of work and worship and rest and relationship. So much more that we could talk about. And this is where I'm grateful for life groups, that we can go and join other people and wrestle through this text to see what else does it talk about in the future there. But I do want to get to uh, the, the next question that we have of this passage. Uh, I told you to put a pin in it, so we will come back. Uh, we are coming back to it now. What does this passage tell us about marriage? Because understandably so, some Christian marriage, uh, couples read that passage and say there is no more marriage or nor are they given to marry, and, and that's a cause for concern. Others see it as a time for rejoicing. Look, I said, till death do us part, I am giving you nothing more than that. And if that's you, I would love to grab coffee and just see how things are going at home. Very willing to do that. But for those who, who see this as a, as a topic of concern or even wonderment, uh, how, what are, do we learn about marriage from this passage? We talked about uh, in the first thing that we learned about the future, that life is more than just an extension of time, that there are things that we have in our lives right now that will stop, that will cease to be in this, in this, in this future time, in this age to come. And, and there's, there's a lot of rejoicing that comes from that, right? Like every bit of brokenness that's within me, every bit of sorrow, that will cease to exist. But there's also some good things that we have, like marriage, like close friendships, uh, uh, not close friendships, like marriage uh, that, that it's talked about here will cease to exist. And, and that's the question, right? It's something good. It's something that God has created and given to us as a good. That all people are valuable because they are created in the image of God. And yet we are not able by ourselves to fully reflect the complexity of our God. That he is so infinitely wonderful that, that we in, in our little selves can do little to do that. And so out of his complexity, he gives us marriage. That we need each other, male and female, to barely reflect even a small part of his complexity still. And yet he gives us this relationship so that we can mirror this, this relationship that he has. And so if God has given us all of this, why would he take that away? Why would he stop that? I, I have a couple things here. One, I, I think the point that's being made in, in our passage is it talks about um, that, that we don't die anymore, so there's no more need to create life as well. So uh, marriage ceases be, uh, because of a lack of a need for procreation or, uh, or the potential of procreation. And, and so I think that's part of it in the passage. But I think the rest of Scripture gives us a little bit of a fuller answer. That in, our, in the lives that we have here, we are limited in showing care to other people. And oftentimes, our spouse receives, or at least ought to receive, the best of our care. And yet, we're called to care and love for so many more people. I, I mean, think about it like this. Anyone who comes to Calvary Bible Church in Thorn, I love and care for you. But if I'm in a situation where I have to choose between uh, my wife and you, like it's some situation where I, I can only save one of you, what am I doing? I am rejecting the premise of the situation. Why on earth would I need to do such a thing? That, that sounds ridiculous. Come on. And I would totally choose my wife, by the way. <laughs> and, and you would choose your wife or your spouse there too. Or you would 
pick your kid or your postman over me. Look, I know where I fit into your life. We would be understanding of each other in that situation, right? Like, of course you're going to pick your spouse. Like, that's the, the highest relationship that you have, of course. But should that be the case? Should I always automatically be so closed off to other people that one relationship gets the best of me or a few relationships gets the best of me at at all times to the neglect of others? That when we read about who we are called to love and care for, love your enemy, love your neighbor as yourself. When a few people in my life get that sort of affection, get that that sort of capacity from me. And, and so what is this passage talking about? It's, it's talking about that in this new life that we're come, the, the limitations that we have to show care towards other are gone. Uh, the, the, the sin that impacts us, that, that makes us so narrow-minded and so narrow-focused is gone. And all the while, our affections are heightened. Our love, our capacities are heightened. And so we are finally able to show the care that we have been called to do in this, in this world. So this passage is not so much about a loss of a relationship. It is about a gaining of so much more. That now, finally, are we able to love and care for all in a way that we are unable to in this moment. And some of that is by design. You think of what, what the Bible calls us to do for our spouse. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church who gave himself up for it. I can't do that for everyone. But in this new life, where these limitations that come from selfishness or sin or even just being so limited, our affections are heightened and we're able to love and care for others in a way that we're just unable to now. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't recognize our spouse that we have in the new heavens, new earth. I'm cheating by going outside the passage. Forgive me for that. But when Jesus is resurrected, he's able to be recognized by people who knew him when he wanted to. We'll we'll get into that. Uh, But he's able to be recognized. And who does he go and spend time with? Well, it's those that he had relationship before he was resurrected. Uh, One of the greatest joys of my life, one one of the biggest gifts that I have is being able to worship alongside my wife. And I hardly believe that I will do anything else for eternity to come. It also, so it doesn't mean that we won't see our spouse and it doesn't mean that those relationships aren't important. It is about so much more of what we gain than what we lose. That we are finally able to love as we are called to, which is to love all. Now, this doesn't mean that marriage isn't important. We can read this and say, well, marriage is going away, so clearly it doesn't matter. That's not true. We had a wedding in this room yesterday, and we clapped without reservation at the end of it. It, Marriage is such a beautiful gift to us. It uh, it is a picture of how we join together as we are meant to be in community. It is a, a picture for us of Jesus' love for you, that his love is described as that of a husband for a wife. It is a place for us to grow in, in likeness to God. One of the most harrowing and, and memorable quotes that I have, Gary Thomas writes in a marriage book, he says, a marriage is designed to make us holy more than it is to make us happy. 
those aren't mutually exclusive, by the way. Like if, if someone's very angry at you all the time, but you're growing in Christ-likeness, maybe you're not growing in Christ-likeness. Uh, so, but marriage is designed to make us holy, to help us grow in God's likeness in that. Uh, marriage uh, follows this picture of Jesus' love and commitment for us, uh, and, and not just marriage as well. I know not everyone in this room is married, and I've been talking a lot about it. In my defense, it's in our text, and so of course I'm going to talk a lot about it. But I do know that the church has done a disservice by not focusing on those who aren't married that we have close friendships as well, which are the embodiment of how we are meant for community. That in these relationships, that these are ways for us to demonstrate care and affection for other people, that we can grow in love for one another. But here's what I think is going on in the passage. Marriage is so good and important. Friendships are so good and important. But shouldn't that make us crave more? Shouldn't that make us be, uh, anticipate all the more when we can love in the way Jesus calls us to love, that we can be one in the way Jesus prayed for us to be one? The, the relationships that we have, should we be content that this is all I need, all I need for eternity? Or should that be an appetizer for us to join in relationship with those who profess the name of Jesus for eternity to come? I think that's what's being gotten here too. It's not a loss of a relationship, but it's a gaining of so much more when we are finally realized in the age to come for those who are resurrected. Last question of the text. What does this passage tell us about questions? Now, as you read over Luke chapter 20, there are questions all over the place throughout it. It starts with the Pharisees coming to Jesus with a question. Where do you get the authority to do this? And Jesus doesn't answer them because they don't really want to know the answer. But then he tells a parable where he answers that question, uh, despite not answering it to begin with. Uh, but he does so in a way that diffuses the situation. Then he's asked a question about how, how do you handle money? And, and he does so in a very straightforward but beautiful way. And then the Sadducees come to him and they ask him a question, but they don't really want to know the answer. But he does answer them that time, and then he argues from a source of knowledge that they have to prove his point. And then at the very end, he asks a question this time. There are questions all over this passage, and while it's not telling us specifically of how to handle questions or, or, or ask questions of other people, I think that there's an example that we can gain from, from Jesus in this moment. And, and so the first thing that, that we see from uh, this, this principle that we can learn from Jesus is that we need to be willing to engage with people and their questions. We need to be willing to engage with people and their questions. See, we have people in our lives that when they, they hear that we go to church or we worship Jesus, they're going to have questions for us. Or even if they don't know that we follow Jesus or go to church, just the, by the fact that they are in our lives, we ask questions of people who are in our lives. So you'll come across people at work or at school or in some group that you're part of or friends or family or neighbors. And just by nature of being near to them, there's an exchange of questions going on. Questions about meaning in life how to understand some current event that's going on, uh, of why you live or act or, or uh, speak in a certain way. 
Uh, what, what you think is, is going on uh, uh, of some idea that's emerged. Just, just picking your brain about some topic. Or if they do hear about your church, why, why do you go to church? Why do you do that? By, by nature of having people in our lives, there, there are questions that, that will come up and, and we need to engage with people and their questions. Now, I'm using the word need right here and this could sound like obligation, like if you don't do this, you're bad. That's not what I'm saying. But as we grow in love for others, as we care for them, as we see who Jesus is and what he's done, as we see his example, well, we want to follow Jesus' example in all things. And we see his willingness here to engage with questions that people asked of him. Even if they didn't really want an answer, even if they were hostile to him, he still engaged with their questions. Now, a couple things that I want to talk about on this. This could sound scary, like, oh, I, I don't feel equipped. I'm, I'm not, I don't know that I'm good enough to provide an answer for these things. And that's okay. Like, you don't need to be an expert to answer questions. And in fact, you might be more appealing that you're not an expert as thoughts on experts is dwindling, are dwindling. Now, you don't need to be an expert to do it. It's about the willingness to engage with people and their questions. Uh, this, this may sound uh, hard because uh, sometimes people ask questions and there's a lot of things going on. They said this wrong thing about God. Do I need to engage with that right now? It's like, no, we just need to be willing uh, to, uh, to focus on what their need is in that moment. I mean, you think about Jesus as he's being asked these questions. He doesn't deal with every issue that's brought to him. He doesn't deal with every concern, every, every bit of an argument. He focuses on what their need is and addresses that. It, this doesn't mean that it will stop being scary. Every time that I'm interacting with people and there's, there's questions, I, I'm, I'm, there's a part where I'm feeling scared. I put far too much pressure on myself that it has to be perfect, that if I mess up right here, I'm gonna mess, like, or, or that, that it goes against every bit of my introvert nature where I just wanna retreat into myself. And so in these moments, we, we remind each other of who Jesus is, of what he's done for us, of who he calls us to be. And I think the best thing that we have is those reminders. What has Jesus done for you? What was your life like before? How has he changed you? And, and it's the answer to those questions that I think are the best answer to any question that we might be asked. How can you believe in such an archaic system that says this thing? It's a fair and honest question. How can you believe in a God when this is happening in this world? That is a fair and honest question. And how can I do so? Because I've seen God do this in my life. How, how can I trust in him? Because this is how I've seen him change my life. It's not addressing the specific need. You don't have to be an expert on world events or anything that's going on. You just need to know what has God done for you? And the answer to that question is often more powerful than anything else that we could provide. We need to engage with people and their questions. Uh, second bit on questions, uh, we need to be willing to ask questions back. We see Jesus at the end of this. He's asked multiple questions from the Pharisees and then the Sadducees, and then he asked them a question in turn. And, and even just simple questions that we could be asking people, what makes you happy? are you happy? What do you value most in your life? What is it that you're living for? Do you have that? Or if they, a conversation goes to church, what has your experience in the church been like? 
And see, in these situations, we're, we're trying to understand where they're coming from. We're trying to understand what their, their belief system is. And this is like what Jesus did with the Sadducees. He went to what they believed in, what they thought was truth, and used that to point them to actual truth. But how can we do that if we don't know what they believe, what they're living for, what their, their focus is on? On the other side of that, how can we do that if we're not around people who are asking questions? if we're retreating from it? How can we follow Jesus' example if we're unwilling to be around people who might be asking questions? Last week, again, we focused on the idea that Jesus receives his authority from God. And this week, it's a really dense, really tough passage, and so we took it in questions. What does it tell us about the future? What does it tell us about marriage? What does it tell us about questions? And yet, in each of those questions that we have, it goes back to this idea that Jesus receives his authority from God. And as we're looking at these topics, as we're looking at the different uh, parts of this passage that emerge, we see this truth emerge, that, that Jesus' authority shapes all of our lives. Jesus receives this authority from God, but that authority that he receives permeates and goes to every part of who we are. I mean, think about it. We talked about what does this passage tell us about the future? Well, there is a resurrection that is coming. There is life that comes after death. Well, the reason why that is possible is because of Jesus. Jesus has come, come with all authority, bringing life with him, life now and for the future. We talked about our present. How do we understand marriage? What is its purpose? What is it going to do? And how does that impact how we understand it now? Well, that is because Jesus teaches about it with authority. Jesus shows us what it's like with his life. Uh, What are we supposed to be doing around other people? How are we follow Jesus in this? Well, Jesus has authority to show us how we are to live, which we are to make disciples. We're to be willing to engage with people on their questions, asking questions back of them. He is, uh, his authority impacts how we live right now. All of this passage is pointing to the fact that Jesus has all authority. Even at the very end, he is called Lord. We call him Lord. That is a title of authority. And this authority is not stagnant, but it goes to every bit of our lives. And you see that throughout this entire passage. How do, why do we handle finances the way that we do? Well, it's because the one with all authority has come. Why do we believe what we do about marriage? Well, it's because the one with all authority has come. Why do we fight through the awkwardness of talking to people? Which I could probably just stop the sentence right there for for some of us in here, but I'll keep going. Why do we fight through the awkwardness of talking to people about Jesus? Well, it's because the one with all authority has come. Why do we put our hopes in a future that we haven't seen, in a resurrection that feels so unnatural, in a life that's to come that sounds too good to be true. Well, it's because the one with all authority has come. We see in this passage that it's so drenched in the authority of Jesus, pointing back to that truth over and over again. And what we see as we look at our lives, as we look at our future, that that too is drenched with the authority of Jesus, that he calls us how to live. He points to us the way that we are shaped now, we are shaped forever because of the fact that the one with all authority has come. That as we see him, 
So we see who he is and what he has done. That as we've been doing throughout this gospel of Luke, that no part of us now or forever will ever be the same. We are offered an opportunity to continue to reflect on this Jesus through the taking of communion. That as we do so, we are reminded about this life that is to come, this resurrection, because Jesus has died on our behalf. We live our lives now because of the fact that Jesus has come to provide salvation and hope and a future for us in here. And, and in taking communion, we, we uh, hearken back to before Jesus died. Uh, he was with his disciples, having a meal with them and saying exactly what it was that was about to happen, that this was no accident. He was at this meal and he, and he took the bread that was there and he said, this is my body, broken. He was, he was pointing to the fact that he would go to the cross and die. Take uh, the punishment for sin for all of us who are in rebellion to God. Take that upon himself. Well, how can we trust in such a thing? Well, he took the cup next and he said, this is a new covenant by my blood. How do we trust in a promise? Well, he's saying the means of trusting in it is through my blood that this isn't something you have to hope some new thing comes, like now we can finally trust in it. No, the means of the promise and the promise itself were fulfilled on the cross.